We're going to hear from God's Word. Uh, it's a sad story we're going to hear this morning. Uh, Ted's going to come and read to us the last chapter of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Thanks, Ted. Found on page 322. Let us hear the word of God. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armour and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armour in the temple of Ashtaroth, they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. They came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Amen. Thanks, Ted. Uh, let's come before our Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, help us to see your hand at work here in the scriptures and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
want to uh, start by asking you a question. What are the important things in life? What are the essentials? You'll probably come up with answers like uh, food, clothing and shelter. But are they really the important things? I mean, could you live without electricity, say? No TV? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, no phone. What about no phone? That's starting to stretch the friendship a little bit, isn't it? What about no fridge, no refrigerator? That'd probably hurt, you know. Uh, at least it would me. Um, <clears throat> now, look, food, clothing and shelter, they're really personal things, aren't they? But what are the essentials for a community? Not an individual, but a community. I mean, if we had, say, a big cyclone, probably not here, but a big fire, and Toowoomba was wiped out, oh, what would you rebuild? Uh, would you, what would you put on top of your list for the community as a whole? Uh, some sort of rule and some way to enforce that. So maybe a council and police, is that what you'd go for? Uh, maybe schools and hospitals, petrol stations, grocery stores. And now that I've got you really thinking, when would you organise a time for regular worship? Or could that wait? What about building a church? Or could that wait as well? I suspect that worship and church buildings would be near the bottom of most people's community list. And the reason is that God isn't seen as essential to the running of a community. He's an optional extra for a community. But I want to say to you that God is the most important part for the good running of any community. Why? Because of one Samuel. Look, um, Israel, they had abandoned the Lord uh, and the Lord had given us a statement which captured the problem. It said a couple of times in the Judges around the two events at Bethlehem. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The you do you. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes with no thought for loving your neighbour and no thought for loving the Lord God. And so God's family, God's kingdom... God's people in God's place under God's rule was being destroyed by God's very own children. Israel went as far as rejecting God as their king and they accepted Saul as their king. Only I'm going to say Saul has lost the plot. He's rejected the Lord. Saul doesn't fight Israel's battles. Saul takes Israel's young men. Saul takes Israel's young women. Saul takes Israel's money. And really, if Saul was honourable, really if he was honourable, 
He'd abdicate, but he holds on to power. And Saul has personally chased David, the future king, the anointed king for the future. Saul has personally chased David to kill him. Saul has used the army to chase David. And it seems it's going to get worse. And David's had to take desperate measures. David is king in waiting and Saul knows it. And all the way from chapter 16, we've been told and we've seen it. Chapter 16 said it like this. David is skillful in playing. That was his music. A man of valour. A man of war. Prudent in speech. A man of good presence. And here's the big one. And the Lord is with him. David, unlike Saul, inquires of the Lord and listens to the Lord. David even listens to the good advice given to him when he makes bad decisions. David listened to Abigail. Even though David knows the battle belongs to the Lord, though, and the Lord is with him, somehow our story starts with fear gripping David. I want you to follow the story. Let's go. We're in uh, chapter 27. We're going to start from verse 1. Follow along in your Bibles. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. And so David moves himself, his 600 men and their families to Gath with the Philistines, away from Saul, to use those familiar words of Vicini in The Princess Bride, inconceivable. I mean, there's no explanation as to why David would do such a thing. In Gath, David convinces the Philistine lord, Achish is his name, to give the town Zechle to David and his men and their families. And from Zechle, we discover, David and his men, they're raiding. They're raiding the enemies of Israel, enemies like the Amalekites. They've already come up in 1 Samuel, and here they are again, and they're going to feature David is keeping to the plan of God. David even convinced Achish that he was really raiding the south of Judah. He was raiding the Israelites. David was so convincing. Chapter 27 has this verse, verse 12. And Achish trusted David, thinking... He has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Which leads to a problem. We're in chapter 28 now, verse 1. 
In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Uh Uh-oh. It looks like David and Saul are going to face each other again. Uh, Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Verse 2, David said to Achish, Very well, you uh, you shall know what your servant can do. Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Saul, though, has his own problem at this time. He's alone. Verse 3 reminds us that Saul, that Samuel, is dead. And now the Philistines are closing in on Israel again. And verse 4, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. And Saul finds himself alone and in need of advice and encouragement. The Philistines have pushed to the very heart of Israel. And verse 5 tells us Saul's terrified. And in verse 6 we see that God doesn't answer him. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Irem or by prophets. Look, this shouldn't come as a surprise to Saul. I mean, while Samuel was alive, Saul ignored and disobeyed God's word to him. And Saul, well, he had killed the priests of God at Nob. That was back in chapter 22. The Urim was a priestly device used to obtain God's choice on a matter. So, So why did he think that God would answer him now? Uh, But more important than that, God had already told Saul what was to happen. The kingdom was to be torn from Saul's grip. It will be given to Saul's neighbour. And the whole story in chapter 28 of the medium of Andor, uh, some refer to it as the witch of Andor, it only reinforces the truth. And it really shows that Saul isn't following the Lord. He's not doing what the kings were told to do. When he can't get his way, he will find other ways of doing it. Look down at verse 17. Saul's had this medium disturb Samuel's peaceful rest. But all Samuel says to Saul is, The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbour, David. Yes, Saul, it is David. And since you are asking, Saul, this is how it's going to be done. Verse 18. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. 
tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. This battle will be Saul's last battle. And in chapter uh, 29 to 31, we have the details of that. First, though, David's got to be removed from the Philistine forces, which is what chapter 29 is all about. Because David's been too convincing in his charade, pretending to raid Israel towns, he's invited by Achish to come and join the massacre of the Israelites. So what does David do? I mean, does he say thanks but no thanks to Achish and raise suspicions and maybe get himself killed? Or does he go along as the Philistines set out to kill his countrymen? Well, in chapter 29, David and his men are marching in the army. It's a parade. And when the other Philistine commanders see David, they ask, verse 3 in chapter 29, what are these Hebrews doing here? But Achish comes to David's defence. He's really convinced David has changed sides. <clears throat> Achish replied, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I found no fault in him to this day. But the other Philistine commanders won't hear it. They remember what David had done last time they were in this position. David had slain not only their champion, Goliath, but many of their soldiers. No, David must go. And so in verses 6 to 11, Achish tells David he's got to go home. You know, David protests a little just to keep up the disguise, I think. And then David goes. <laughs> but things are about to get worse for David. We're now in chapter 30. In chapter 30, David returns to his home to find it's been ransacked. His wealth is taken, his family is taken. Chapter 30, verse 1. Note the Amalekites are here again. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burnt it with fire, verse 2, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. Well, at least no one was killed, but David's men aren't happy, and I wouldn't be either. And in verse 6, David's men show how angry they are. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David's in a tough time, and unlike Saul, 
he really does turn to God. Uh, this is what the kings were supposed to do. David, he has a priest with an ephod. The ephod would have had the urm in it. And David seeks some answers from God. And in verses 6 to 8, God replies to David. No silence, no judgment here, but real comfort, hope. David, who's shown that he trusts and obeys God, gets help from God. And this is about the Amalekites again. Remember, they were the enemies. They were supposed to be wiped out. That is God's plan. And that's what's happening here again. God has given David not only a way out of the thorny situation he got himself in with the Philistines. David doesn't have to be part of the, uh, of the attack on the Israelites. And now God speaks to David, gives orders and David obeys. And God places just the right person an Egyptian in his path, verses 11 through to 14, to tell David just what he needed to know in order to get his family back. And God gives him success in the battle. There should be no surprise there. The end of the matter is that David is able to reward all the places who supported him. Uh, look, we're in chapter 30. Look at verse 26. When David came to Zechleg, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. When uh, Saul became king, Saul took and took and took. And here's David, he's giving instead of taking. David is a different king to Saul. Sadly for Saul, it becomes a horrifying story. Chapter 31. It gives us the account of Saul's death. The story is really brief, factual, and very sad. The Israelite army is destroyed. Saul's sons are killed. And Saul commits suicide. The non-king, he's really not king. He doesn't act like the king was supposed to. The non-king Saul dies. This wasn't the end the people had in mind when they demanded a king from Samuel back in chapter 8. They demanded a king like the nations that would lead them into battle. Well, they got that, but it didn't work out, did it? But when you are a people whose blessing and prosperity is tied to, well, your faithfulness to God's command, and you have a king who disobeys those commands, and when the people follow that disobedient king, can you really expect the blessing or the prosperity? If the Lord's victories are your victories, 
then you have no victories when you abandon the Lord, which is what Israel and Saul had done. Israel had abandoned God as their king in favour of a human king. And then when the human king dies, well, look at what happens. Chapter 31, verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Total disaster. Well, what should we do about this? Well, look, first of all, I'm going to say, you're not Saul. That's probably the good news. And you're certainly not King David. We are like the ordinary Israelite. We have a tendency to do what is right in our own eyes. Generally, we fail to love God and we fail to love our neighbours ourselves. And so we corrupt everything around us. Uh, but did you notice that when David faces his town totally destroyed, that what he did was he turned to God? Look, I, I believe that people do need hospitals and they need schools and they need petrol stations and, and people really need a leader, but they need the right leader a leader who can't be killed, a leader who has the resources to guide and comfort. And just like for Israel, the Lord has provided the world, he's provided us with a king, with that leader. He's in the family line of David. He's Jesus, the Christ. And like David, this Jesus gives it's captured in Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. After a discussion about rulers, Jesus said of himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A king who gives. A king who, when he's in distress in the garden, turns to God, Lord, if possible, let this cup pass from me. A king who was willing to obey, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus doesn't take, he gives. He gave his life as a ransom, a ransom for us. A ransom from our failures to love God and our failure to love our neighbour. He gives his life so his victories can be our victories. Uh, yes, there are horrors in this life and, and he, even the book of Revelation has some of those horrors listed. But before God shows those horrors to John... The Lord gives John a picture of heaven, a picture to sustain him in all the tough times. Turn over right to the end, Revelation chapter 5. Have a look there. Revelation chapter 5. Look at verses 5 and 6. 
in heaven they're looking for a leader someone to open a special book there's no one it seems except there's one one he's in verse 5 one of the elders says to John look the lion of Judah the root of David the great king of Israel has conquered he can do it he can open the scroll and its seven seals in all of heaven and earth there's nobody like the great lion of Judah and the elder says look around meet him this is the leader we need but when John turns around to see the lion he doesn't see the lion at all verse 6 and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain John looks for a triumphant lion and sees a blood-splattered lamb instead. And this slain lamb is standing in the centre of the throne, that's standing in the centre of the powerful living creatures, who's standing in the centre of the throne of the 24 elders. And of course, the lamb is Jesus. See the king god gives us the king we need he comes from the line of david the line whose hearts sought the things that god wanted he's more than just human he is human this king can be killed and yet live this king can never be destroyed and so this king can be with us always. Dare I say, long live the king. And so when our world is destroyed with floods or fires or anything else, we need to come to the king, King Jesus, for guidance and for comfort. And that's why Christians and churches, I'm going to say, are the most important things to rebuild when disasters strike. Because Christians can then point people to Jesus. Let me pray. Father, uh, thank you. You really do see and know and understand. Even when we don't fully understand ourselves. Thank you, Father. Thank you for giving us a king. Thank you for giving us an eternal king. Thank you for giving us an eternal king who listens to you and follows you and seeks your way always. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.